a reading from the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I had a chance to address last week the 845 crowd and tell them how blessed and humbled Mary and I and the rest of my family uh, was at the outpouring of love that you gave us during our recent obstacle and my physical ailment, um, your cards and your calls and your visits and your prayer quilt uh, meant the world to us. Um, and always will. I must confess to you that this, I've preached, I, I, I don't know, five, six hundred sermons in my life. I could, I, I'm not bragging here, but I could write a sermon in my sleep if I wanted. Now, whether it be good or a bad sermon, that's a different, a different question altogether, but I could write a sermon pretty easily. Um, but this is probably the hardest sermon that I think I have given, um, mainly because it's a confessional sermon. I think you uh, as a church and us as a family need to know um, what we experienced um, or what I and my family experienced, and um, I need to say thank you. So there I was um, sitting in the middle of the night in the middle of our living room as I often did in the middle of the night because I could never sleep. And I had 40 hours to go until surgery. Um, This Chiari malformation, they told me, is doing something to you and we need to get it fixed. And I'd never heard it before, but if it was the culprit that was ravaging my body, then I think I would do anything to fix it. But lying there, or no, crouched down there on the floor, I didn't want to wake Mary up. She had gone through so much. She needed her sleep. I didn't want to wake the kids up. I just sat there and the problem was that I didn't think I could make it another 40 hours just didn't 
I'd lived with this issue, this problem for years, and I'd managed to keep it under control with um, the help of good doctors. But a fall on the ice in January made the problem much worse. It had begun to affect everything, my sleep, my energy. It was hard for me to eat because of my nerves. And I constantly felt this electric shock radiating through my ear. More importantly, though, I could deal with all of those things. Those were easy to deal with compared to the shock and the burden that it was putting on my family, the way it affected them, the people I love, my wife and my children and my church, and even my relationship with God. The hope, of course, was that the surgery would fix everything, but I didn't think I could make it that long. I didn't think I could make it for 40 more hours. Mary's sister was staying with us at the time, and she had happened to wake up while I was crouched in this ball, and she said, Brad, you can do anything for 40 hours, but I didn't know if I could. For the first time, I'm going to admit this. For the first time in my life, I looked out into the woods. Our house looks out upon this beautiful meadow, and there is woods beyond the meadow and then uh, a river. And for the first time in my life, I looked out into the woods past the meadow, and I thought maybe it would just be easier for everybody if I walked out the door and through the woods and was never seen again. It hadn't been, though, I thought, while I was lying there, um, it hadn't been the first time that God followers, dedicated God followers, had thought, no matter how fleeting, that they wanted to die. Elijah had the entire country talking about him in the book of Kings. The day before he had staged a contest between him and his God and the 450 prophets of Baal, and you know what happened. He won, the prophets of Baal lost, and, and, and the kingdom was his. The God had shown everybody that he was the one true God. But instead of standing his ground and and, and marking his territory as this is the country of the Lord God of Israel, he fled. He was afraid of Jezebel, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran deeper and deeper into the wilderness until he settled under a broom tree. There he begged God to die, asked God over and over to let him die. On the biggest stage in the country, Elijah prevailed. He had a great day, but then the next day, he wanted to die. After Moses risked his life to free the Israelites from Egypt, they all began grumbling and whining to him for some meat. All they got was manna. They got bread, enough sustenance to keep going, but they wanted meat. And this bothered Moses so badly that he said to God, where can I get meat for these people, God? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. 
And I cannot carry all of these people on my shoulders by myself. The burden is too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, then go ahead and just kill me, Moses says. Do me a favor. Spare me this misery. In the book of Job, we see that after Job is stripped of his health and of his family and of his wealth, he laments and he curses the day he was born. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? After the Ninevites were saved by Jonah's preaching, Jonah was so angry, he hated the Ninevites so much. They were such an evil people that did so many bad things. But God told them to go there. And they were saved. Well, they, redeemed, they were redeemed and They gave allegiance to the one true God. And Joseph stood overlooking the hill of the Ninevites, the city, and asked God to let him die because he couldn't bear to see his brutal enemies come to faith in the one true Savior. I've been in ministry a long time, 15 or so years. That might not be long to you, but And I've seen hundreds of people. I've been in their houses. I've been in their hospital rooms. I've seen hundreds, maybe thousands, who loved God passionately, who were saints of God. But they didn't want to go on living. And if you want me to be really candid, I always used to pity them really did I would pray for them I would I would hug them I would ask if there was anything I could do I would run errands for them I would play interference with the family for them and I always always walked away shaking my head shaking my head saying a prayer for them asking God to heal them. But I can never shake this feeling inside of me that if they just trusted the Lord enough, they just put their faith in God enough, that they wouldn't think that, that they would never want to die. One of the many things that this strange illness has taught me is not to be so quick to judge or not to be so quick to shake my head or come up with these one-line remedies that would hopefully make believers feel differently about their lot in life. This is the Lord's will. Gosh, I'm sorry, you'll get through this. One day you'll be in a better place. They never worked on me, and I don't think they've ever worked on anybody I've ever used them on. I think the only thing that works is just being there, holding my hand, holding your hand, and crying with each other.
But if these great prophets of God begged God, begged God to kill them, well, then uh, us ordinary saints, us ordinary followers, we have to be subject to the same pain life throw their way. It's going to throw that stuff our way too. But God always, he's so beautiful, isn't he? He always finds a way to set us back on course. The God of life is always showing us life from a different perspective. If we allow him, he's always offering us um, life from somebody else's point of view. He sent angels to the prophet Elijah to care for him, to give him food, to tell him the journey is going to be too much for you if you don't get up and eat. He spoke to Job. Wouldn't it be great to speak to God? And God spoke to Job. He sent a big fish to save Jonah and slap him back into his senses. And he sent the resurrection and the life in Jesus Christ himself to show us the way. In the middle of the night, 40 hours before my surgery, my mind, my mind was a flood with people who I have sat with hand in hand who had it much worse off than I did. My goodness. Mine was petty stuff. The mourners who had lost their spouse. The grieving parents who had lost their child. The depressed who can't seem to crawl out of this deep, dark hole they are in. And I realized that God didn't send a fish to knock some sense into me or some angels to feed me and he didn't allow me to talk to him. Instead, he sent me my family. He sent me Grant and he sent me Lucy. He sent me Mary and he sent me you. And you cradled me with your cards. And you covered me with your quilt blanket of prayer. And I think, if I'm, if I'm really honest with myself, I think that's what got me, because listen, I'm a terrible patient. I'm, ask my doctor, I am a terrible patient, but I think that's got what got me through for the next 40 hours before surgery is hearing Grant pray for me and my ear and feeling Lucy hug me and whisper Daddy I hope your ear feels better seeing Mary 
be stronger than she should ever have to be. Because listen, I'm a type A personality, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> I always want to push through no matter how I feel, no matter what it takes. My body is just wired that way to keep going, to ignore things. The woods, my, my dad has a favorite poem. I might have mentioned it to you. It's an obvious Robert Frost poem. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Miles to go before I sleep. My dad put that up on his wall, and he lived by that standard. Now, I'm not sure Robert Frost was saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. I don't think that's the point of the poem, but that's how my father took it, and that's how I took it. I must keep going. The experience, though, this whole deal has reminded me of the ancient practice of teshuva. It's a weird word, isn't it? It's a weird Hebrew word, teshuva. See, in the Old Testament, God commanded that every seven years, the people were to allow the crops to lie fallow. And they were also commanded to rest, to have fun to engage in parties. And this wasn't some suggestion from God. It wasn't, it wasn't some, um, uh, hey, you might think about wanting to do this. It was a commandment from God, equal to the Ten Commandments from God. If you read the, New, the Old Testament, you'll see that the Hebrews never once, not once, practiced teshuvah. And because of that, the land didn't rest and would not produce crops. And famine came. And when famine came, discord came. And when discord came, war came. And when war came, destruction came. And lying in the hospital bed <clears throat> after surgery, it just hit me. I haven't been practicing teshuva this whole time that I've been in ministry. I haven't once fulfilled that command. And perhaps, just maybe, my heart, since I didn't let it lay fallow, my heart grew dry. We, church, we need to rest. We need to let the crops of our hearts rejuvenate. Lest famine comes. Revelation is a difficult book, isn't it? What Mary read is strange, even for scholars. Most think that once we are in heaven, God will wipe away all the tears and there will be no more mourning and there'll be no more pain and there'll be no more sea, no more separation. Most scholars think that and that's a fine interpretation. But I'm here to tell you that's not what happened to me. It didn't work that way for me. My pain 
physically and emotionally and spiritually were taken away in the here and in the now. In life, we are constantly moving back and forth in time, back and forth between what was and what is and what might be. But the writer of Revelation never lets you get stuck in just one time zone. Never does that. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is now among mortals. Now among mortals. Here and now. It's the present tense. It's all about if we let him wipe away our tears. If we let him take away our mourning. In other words, God's right here in the middle of ordinary life, no matter where you are. And if we let him, he will wipe tears from our eyes, relieving us from so much pain. And I can't help but wonder, I just can't help but wonder, if right here and right now, For some of us, Jesus is making good on that promise. Behold, he says, I am making all things new. I suppose everybody goes through dark nights of the soul at some point in our lives or another. It's just a fact of life. And during my ordeal, it was hard for me to put myself and my family in God's hands. And I'm a pastor, and I don't know why it was. I'm just going to admit to you that it was. But next time, here's what I've learned. Next time, I'm going to spare myself all that spiritual pain. Because there's going to be a next time. I'm going to let the words of my mouth and the cry of my heart be that of Christ on the cross. Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my life, my family's life, and the life of this world. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving each and every one of us just what we need to get through the day. Thanks for holding that light or lamp out right in front of us so we can see where we're stepping but not showing us the entire thing because that would be so scary. Help us, God. Give us the resolve and the determination because so many of us are to take charge type of people and it's hard to say My illness is in your hands. 
my lost daughter is in your hands. My cancer is in your hands. And in your hands, we will commit our spirits. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.